All right, into Genesis, and we continue in the episode of proving Abraham. And uh, this proving really means a demonstration, a demonstration of the growth that God has brought about in the life of Abraham, that God has brought about through his relationship with Abraham, treating Abraham as a son, uh, the father of what in Exodus he will call his firstborn son, the nation of Israel. God has a plan and a purpose for Abraham, which includes the Messiah and the salvation that the Messiah will bring to the entire world. And he has a plan and a program for how he will restore what was lost in Eden through the line of Abraham, specifically through that one descendant, the Messiah. And so here we have a climactic event in the life of Abraham, one where we see the spiritual life of this Old Testament saint on display, one where he has gone from one of the least faithful characters yet in Scripture to one of amazing faith. And we see all the way through his life that that is the slow and careful work of God in the life of the believer. There are a few heresies that... Uh, that try to challenge this idea. One in the church age is called, uh, oh, I can't quite remember what it's called, but it is a Calvinist doctrine that essentially says the moment you are saved, God sanctifies you practically and entirely so that you won't sin anymore. This goes clearly against scripture and would uh, negate any instructions in the New Testament not to sin. Um, there are lesser degrees of this heresy as well, but we see through the lives of countless believers in scriptures and in our own lives, which again demonstrate those scriptures, that sin is still the experience of all those humans who are alive prior to the resurrection. As long as we are alive in our flesh, sin will be a part of that experience. The gift that we have in God, in our regenerated spirits, is that we have the opportunity not to sin for the first time. There is an equal heresy on the other side of this, and it's come to be known recently as hyper-grace, and that is that you stand positionally in Christ to the point where God no longer sees anything you do, but only the work of Christ, and so he's never disappointed in you no matter what you do. This leads to the unfortunate consequences that you can live a terrible, raucous, and sinful life, and they say God is not disappointed in you for that. He only sees Jesus. There's no need to grow. There's no need to mature. The result of that is not having a greater love for God, but demonstrating a lack of love for God. Because as we will see this morning, Abraham, at the peak of his love for God, obeyed God. That is how we show our love to God. And so this hyper-grace is essentially, I get to love the world so much, and God not at all, because God loves me. This is not the reciprocal love that we saw in 1 John that we studied last year. And so this is really why we've paired this study together with 1 John and Abraham, so that we can see the love of God, so that we can see growth in a relationship with God. And now we see it here on display with Abraham. We see faith that is active, faith that works. And it's not a mistake that James, in uh, his second chapter of his little epistle, pointed to this event in the life of Abraham to show that this demonstrated the faith that he possessed. Faith is not something you can see, but you can see some of the results of it if faith continues to work in the life of that believer so that it grows them into maturity. This is a mature believer in the one true God. This is one who has come to love God, to know God personally, and to trust him in all things. And this episode is also circulating around this very important doctrine of substitution, that God is going to provide our salvation for us. It's not something that we are going to work for or ever be able to work for. It's nothing that we can provide for ourselves. Had Abraham slaughtered Isaac on that altar, it would not have provided atonement for anyone because Isaac is a sinner in need of salvation. God is going to provide the substitute sacrifice. God is going to sit in that position himself 
and take on that punishment because man cannot. And so we find ourselves in this outline still in chapter 22, which here is titled Risking It All for the Covenant. In other words, throwing your entire hope on this contract with God. Throwing everything, not into what you see in the world, but to what God has said about it. When God speaks, Abraham listens. This is a mature faith. When God says, do this, Abraham does this. And through the whole way, we don't see griping and moaning and complaining or even a posture of this. And it's not a put on. It's not a show. Abraham has grown up. Abraham knows that the best possible thing is to trust God. And then we will see the genealogy of the arrogated line of Nahor. But we start here with the episode of rescue. Now, I always have this temptation, and perhaps it's this age of media where you end TV episodes on cliffhangers. I tried really hard to give you a cliffhanger in the last one, but everybody knows what happens after Abraham lifts his hand to strike Isaac. We all know that God steps in. God intervenes. They came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Come back next week at this time and find out what happens next. Well, what happens next? The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now there's an interesting difference in how the angel of the Lord is described here versus other places where we've seen him. Remember the first time we saw this angel of the Lord interacting on a very personal level with someone, we saw him surprisingly interacting with Hagar. Hagar, who had been cast away from her home, cast away from Abraham, and the angel of the Lord met her in Genesis 16 and promised her something, a different promise, not the promise of the covenant given to Abraham, because that could not belong to her. It had to come through Sarah, but a different one. God cares not just about the line of Abraham, not just about the line of Isaac and Jacob. He cares about the whole world and all the nations. But when he was interacting with Hagar, his name was the angel of Elohim. And here, as he is interacting with the covenant people, his name is the angel of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. This angel of the Lord, as we will see in a few verses, is himself deity, identifies himself as God. This angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Trinity. And we have him calling out from heaven. What he says is, Abraham, Abraham, not just one Abraham, as he has said to him before, but two. This increases the sense of urgency, and we see God use this tact in other cases as well. For example, in Exodus 3:4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside and looked, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This Moses, Moses, came as a cease and desist from what he was doing. An urgent call for him to stop before he stepped on holy ground in an unclean manner. God calls out Abraham, Abraham, because of the urgency of the moment. Abraham is fully prepared and about to put his weight into this sacrifice. God's urgency shows that he fully expects Abraham to drop the knife on Isaac. God will use this as well in 1 Samuel 3. In fact, he calls on Samuel four different times, just calling him Samuel. And Samuel responds just as Moses does, just as Abraham does. And he says, here I am, Lord. And then finally, he says, Samuel, Samuel. And he says, I'm your servant. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then the Lord tells him about Eli and his sons and the punishment that he's about to bring on them for their unfaithfulness, for their lack of love for God, and their corruption in their positions as priests. In Acts 9, he does the same thing to Paul while he was still named Saul. 
He says, Saul, Saul, as he stops him on the Damascus road and prevents him from going into Damascus and massacring Christians. And it's that moment where he makes himself real to Paul, where he introduces himself to Paul, and where Paul comes face to face with the one true God, the one who hung on the cross for him. And just as in these other cases, God does this to stop Abraham from what he's doing. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. In other words, do not harm him. I'm not going to have you do something different, some different kind of sacrifice or kill him in a different way. For now I know that you fear God. Remember this began in verse 1 with a test. God did not tell Abraham, this is a test. I'm going to see how far you'll take it, and then I'll stop you when it's getting dangerous. No, he tells Abraham, go do this. And Abraham says, okay. And he says, okay, by his actions. He just starts packing up his things and preparing to go and walking three days to the place where he needs to go. And here God says, that's the proof. That's the evidence. The evidence isn't that Abraham was faithful enough for God to reward him with eternal life. That Abraham was faithful enough and, okay, now I will give you those things that I promised you unconditionally. There were no conditions. God will provide those things. God will work his covenant out. If Abraham is unfaithful, God will use Isaac. If Isaac is unfaithful, God will use Jacob. And in fact, many times and in many generations, God's seed line is unfaithful. And thank goodness that the covenant does not depend on the faithfulness of Israel. Because Israel is a stiff-necked people. This is one reason why God chose them. Because they were small, because they were weak, and because Abraham was a bit of a scoundrel. And God was able to demonstrate his ability to change people when they encounter him. God does the same thing with Jacob. In fact, his name is basically Scoundrel. And God changes his name to Israel. He says, now I know that you fear God. This does not mean, now I know that you're scared enough of me to kill your son when I say kill him and to shake in your boots when I say stop there. No, this fear of God, as we know from the Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom as we know from the Psalms as well. But the fear of the Lord is more than just simply respect for the Lord. Fear of the Lord, especially in its Old Testament concept, we stop using it as much like this in the New Testament, but fear of the Lord is intimately tied together with the kind of love that we are called to have for God, the kind of love that obeys, the kind of love that wants to and seeks to obey the kind of love that trusts God. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded for me to teach you. He's talking about the law of Moses here. That you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God. This law of Moses teaches them to fear the Lord to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. In other words, that they might experience the blessing that God has prepared for them in the land, that they might come into a full and fruitful possession of those promises that belong to them by right. In 6.13, what does he say? You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Well, wedged in between these is another statement that parallels all these three, but instead of fear, it says love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 10.20 You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. And moving forward three verses, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge and his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. The fear of the Lord and the love of God is the same thing. This is common in Hebrew thought. They will parallel two ideas together that are not in and of themselves synonymous, 
but they share something in common. And you can see what is shared between these two terms, this respect for God and this desire for him. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, to, a, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. This was delivered to Israel about the same time that Genesis was delivered to Israel both for the purpose of learning, of understanding this God who has brought them out of Egypt. In fact, when God brings them out of Egypt multiple times in Exodus and many, many times in the Psalms and the prophets, God bases his rescue of Israel from Egypt on the Abrahamic covenant. This is what Genesis was given to them to teach them. And then the law of Moses was given to them to show them the love for God, or to teach them love for God. And they get a great demonstration here in Abraham, who lived before the law, before the law was given. But this love for the Lord is transdispensational. That means it doesn't matter when or where in history we are talking about, love for God means obeying his commandments. It means knowing him well enough to know what he has asked of you. Loving his word and reading it and caring enough to spend time in it so you get to know him. In fact, I, I heard a wonderful little anecdotal story this, uh, this week, and I hope this person won't mind me using this example. I won't give names or anything, but this man was telling me about his wife and how he wasn't home, uh, but somebody was on their property trying to figure out how to do something, and she went out and says, oh, this is how my husband would do it. And they did it that way, and the, it worked. She knew her husband well enough to know something that's it's not her skill, it's not her forte, it's not what she does, but she knows what her husband would do in this situation. That's the kind of love that we're to have for God, one which knows him one which understands him from his word and from what he's told us. So that in situations that arise in our lives that we don't have direct examples to in scripture, we know God's character towards that situation. We know what he would do. 1 John 5, 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Well, what did he tell us were his commandments? Just a few verses prior to this in 1 John 3.23. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Here's the beginning and the end of the Christian life. It starts with faith in Christ. It continues with faith in Christ. And it arrives at mature faith, love for one another. When we come face to face and encounter God's love in his word, we know that love, we recognize that love, and we recognize who we are in him because of that love. That love begins to flow through us, not because we tried harder, but because we know him better. And that's what has happened here with Abraham. He wasn't plotting, okay, I really messed up on all the other tests here, and i got to get this one right. Abraham trusts God. That's a difference in, in mindset, a difference in relationship. He said, do not stretch out your hands against the lad and do not, or do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I like listening to uh, YouTube videos explaining why certain songs sound good and are enjoyable to listen to. And one common thing that I found is whenever a piano note is hit that you don't expect, but that harmonizes with everything you've heard already, it makes something particularly beautiful. And we have that here in the text as well. 
There's something that we're expecting to read after your son, your only son, that we do not read here. And when we understand why, it shows us the beauty of this test. Before the test, God said, your son, your only son, the object of your love, whom you love. After the test, God refers to Isaac twice as your son, your only son, your son, your only son. Why? Because Abraham has shown God that God is the object of his love. His son does not stand between him and his love for God. In fact, Isaac becomes as absent from this story at this point as Sarah was from the first half. Few of you may have noticed, Sarah's nowhere mentioned in the beginning of chapter 22, and you think she might want to know that Abraham is taking their son three days away to kill him. That might be information that she needs to know. Perhaps she knew. Perhaps she didn't know. That's not the point of this text. The point is to show the test that God gave to Abraham, which he passed, the test that shows his mature faith, the test that shows that God has recognized in his actions that he, God, is the object of Abraham's love. That's a difference from when he first set out, from when God first called him into this land, where he's trying to take with him all the possessions, all the people, and this obsession he has for an heir trying to make Lot his heir, trying to make Eliezer of Damascus his heir, trying to make Ishmael his heir. Now he finally has the heir that God promised him, and is he going to stake his whole hope on that heir or the one who gave him that heir? Well, he stakes it all on the one who gave him that heir. He trusts God over all things at this point. And of course, the angel of the Lord says, you have not withheld your son from me from the angel of the Lord, when it was God who called Abraham to do this. The angel of the Lord is God himself. The angel of the Lord is divine. He is deity. Try as they might for the rabbis to get around this, they cannot. And what we see is that Abraham was freely given a gift, a gift in the place of Isaac, his son, that God provided for him. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And that's the most important phrase here. This ram stood in the place of his son. What his son should have received this ram received instead. We kind of expected a sheep here, didn't we? Back in, what was it, verse 8 or so, Isaac asked his father, where's the sheep for slaughter? And he says, the Lord will provide. And so if this were a literary story that we were coming up with, we would probably try to pair this and say, well, it's a sheep. This is probably one, one good example of why this isn't made up. But we don't really need that many examples of why this isn't made up. We know it's not. But when we get into Leviticus, which is one book which the Israelites have just received for the first time as well, it says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. This is the very first sacrifice spoken of in the book of Leviticus, the book of righteousness, the book of God's sacrificial system that points to Jesus. The very first offering, this burnt offering that makes atonement, and it's made at the gate of the tent of meeting, the place where God interacts with his people. That time, the tabernacle that was movable, eventually the temple, which was placed on Mount Moriah, the very place where Abraham offered this burnt offering of a ram. Oh, I didn't include it. Leviticus 16 uh, tells us about this 
atonement sacrifice. And it mentions two goats and one ram and then a bull for a sin offering. The two goats are divided. One becomes a scapegoat that gets to escape while the other receives the punishment. And then the ram is offered up as a burnt offering for the purpose of making atonement, for the purpose of covering the sin of the entire nation of Israel. Now, atonement is covering. Atonement is kafar in the Old Testament. And hilasmos, I believe, in the New Testament. And it means mercy seat. The mercy seat itself was coffer covered in gold. What God is doing in the sacrificial system is covering sin. That's not his end goal. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now he explains that a bit. Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as an atonement, not as an atonement, as a propitiation, in his blood through faith. He stands in the place of all the, the atoning sacrifices and offers something far greater than atonement. Offers something far greater than a covering of sin. He offers expiation of sin. The removal, the erasure, the absorption of that sin and of God's righteous wrath on it. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. And how did he pass over those sins previously committed? Was it hyper-grace? God was never disappointed in Israel. He looked at them and he says, You're my chosen people. I'm just going to wink at that one. No, he was disappointed with them on many occasions. On multiple occasions, he even cast them out of their land. He gave them cycles of judgment to try to train them up. It is a very, very true statement that the father who spares the rod hates his child. Hypergrace has a God who hates his children. Hypergrace does not love and does not understand it. I'm on a bird trail. He passed over the sins previously committed. He did not wink at them. He did not say, oh, those are okay. He offered a way of covering those sins until the final removal of those sins could be made on the only basis that was possible, on the blood of Jesus Christ, the final sacrifice, the only one that actually does anything about sin. And this was for the demonstration, I say, Paul says, of his righteousness in the present time. So that God's righteousness could be revealed, not in the sacrificial system, but in what the sacrificial system pointed to, in Jesus Christ. So that he would be the just. He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews 2, 16 through 17, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Now, there's a song that we sing here occasionally, and I absolutely love the song. It's called, I Stand Redeemed. And there's one line in there that says that we sing a song that angels could not sing. Angels cannot sing about the redemption that God has provided for sin in the same way that we can, at least. They can do so in recognition of God's glory in providing salvation for mankind but not in thankfulness for having been saved themselves. Of course, the angels who are singing had no need for salvation because they did not fall. But there is no substitution provided for the fallen angels. There is no substitution provided for Satan, for none of his legions. But there has been for us. Assuredly, he does not give help to angels but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Remember, Jesus came 
not in the race of angels, apes, or aliens, but in the race of Adam. He took on human flesh, not an angelic nature. He was born into humanity for the very purpose of dying in the place of humanity. For standing in the, on the chopping block that Adam was placed on, that Adam put himself on, and receiving the punishment instead. He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people? No. Atonement is not a New Testament concept. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make a final sacrifice that finally does the only thing that could ever be done about sin. To absorb it himself, having not deserved any of it. And if anyone sins, 1 John 1 through 2, and guess what? The implication here is that you will sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He has absorbed the entire punishment for sin for the whole world. He now stands in that place of Adam. But guess what? Some people reject this gift, refuse this gift, and choose instead to stand in Adam's race, apart from Christ, apart from God, and say, no, I think I'll take care of this sin myself. Or say, it's not actually sin. That's what 1 John 1.8 and 1.10 was about. Those who say they do not sin or those who say they do not have sin. No, we recognize that it's by the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1.7 that we are cleansed, and that it's only on this basis. You see, the sin of Adam by natural reproduction was imputed to his entire race. That means it was placed on the entire race. And what Jesus did when he hung on the cross was he had that sin imputed to him so that he hung on the cross for the entire race. But there's one more imputation that's necessary for salvation. Just because Jesus died on the cross does not mean that everyone he died for will be saved. Because faith and faith alone appropriates life from Christ. We don't just have the removal of sin, but we need the presence of his gift of eternal life. We need the gift of righteousness. Even if we're washed clean, we don't have positive righteousness. We've just lost the debt. And let me tell you one thing, there's not much difference between owing some money and having zero in your checking account. You still can't buy anything. But Christ, in his imputation, puts all of his righteousness on you, puts all of his life on you. This is offered to the entire world because Christ died for the sins of every single person and for every single one of their sins without a single exception when he died on the cross. And remember 1 John 4, 8 through 10. One of two places propitiation is mentioned in 1 John out of only four places in the New Testament. And its focus is that this was a demonstration of God's love. In the very place where Abraham demonstrated his love for God, God demonstrates his love for mankind. The one who does not love does not have eternal life from God. Not what this says. Does not know God. He has not matured in his faith because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested among us. It was made visible, made present, given a demonstration in front of us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To stand in the place of Isaac, to stand in the place of Abraham, in the place of Adam, and in our place, and to take that sin instead of us so that we might have life in him. Abraham called the name of that place, that hill of Moriah that he brought Isaac to. He called the name of it, the Lord will provide, or in Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. That's a very Romanized pronunciation of it, but I won't try the Hebrew pronunciation. This literally means the Lord will see. The Lord will see it. The implication or the context means the Lord will see it provided or see to it that it is provided. Then he says, as it is said to this day, this is an editorial note by Moses, meaning that the proverb still exists in his day. It's still a colloquial term that they use when Israel apparently would say, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Or literally, he will see it on the Lord's mountain. They may not have known the full implication of what would be seen on the Lord's mountain, but the Lord's mountain really becomes the center of the world and the center of the created universe. This is the focal point of where God is going to work to restore creation, to be victorious over this land, to possess the gates of his enemies. This is not to be ritualistic by any means, but just to show you. This is the mountain. This is where the bedrock pokes through the Temple Mount. Abraham could have walked here with Isaac. This could have been the place where he almost sacrificed Isaac and God provided a substitution. And back up a little bit and you see it better. Unfortunately, you look up and you see this. But this is what eventually stood there. This is what Israel was coming out of Egypt looking forward to without even knowing it yet. The place where hundreds, millions, billions of gallons of blood would be spilled to cover their sins until finally just a few quarts of blood of eternal value were spilled to take care of it all. But that blood was so much more valuable than anything that could have been sacrificed in its place. In fact, if we back up a little further, we see just how close the crucifixion of Christ was to the Temple Mount. Christ could not have been crucified on the Temple Mount. It would have uh, broken all sorts of Levitical codes, and Israel would not have permitted that. But he was crucified just as it was said outside the gates of the city, Hebrews 13. In fact, in Hebrews, the, uh, the author of Hebrews, which I, we all wish we knew who it was, we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, he very, very creatively uses this fact that Christ was crucified outside of the city walls to instruct Israel close to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 because the temple is now defunct, having no more need of sacrifice. He instructs them to go outside the city wall, to leave the city, to leave the Mosaic ritualism behind because it has been fulfilled. And a continuation in the Mosaic law is a tacit declaration that Christ's blood did not finish it. He was crucified on Golgotha, outside the city wall. On the same mount, Mount Moriah, this mountain has two peaks, by the way. Mount Zion is one peak, Mount Moriah is the other peak, but it's one hill. And this is the promise that God has for this location in the future. Because in the future, he himself will be the temple in this location. In the eternal state, there will be no more need for a temple. 
No more need for sacrifices. In the millennium, there will be. It will serve as worship. But here, in the eternal state, actually this isn't yet the eternal state in Isaiah 56, but in the eternal state, God himself will be the temple. And we will dwell intimately in him, with him. That is the eternity we have to look forward to in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. But on this very mountain, in God's hour of victory in the millennial kingdom, what do we see? The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, meaning those who are not of Israel, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. And also we have another class of people, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. That's Israel. That is the remnant of Israel in this Old Testament context. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, not because they're needed for the covering of sin, but because they will look back at the finishing of the atonement for sin in the propitiation of Jesus Christ. You see, there's going to be something very unique about the millennial kingdom, and that is that death will be almost non-existent. Not gone yet. But you know, we have very, we, we do not have to go very far to see the consequences of sin in our world. In the millennial kingdom, to remember the consequences of sin will be very difficult. Though it will be present, it will be far more diminished. But the sacrifices in the temple in that day and in that age, on this very mountain where the final sacrifice was made, will be in commemoration so that we might look and recognize and understand how much our king provided on our behalf. God has eternal purposes on this mountain. It is his this is where he plans to have victory over all of creation. And it's here at this time where he gives his final confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is the most fervent, the most emphatic swear that he could produce. Hebrews 6 brings this up. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we would have taken refuge uh, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is just an interesting little tidbit, but do you know where, where Abraham met Melchizedek? At the base of the foot of Mount Moriah, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley. The very place where the high priest of God would serve in this Melchizedekian priesthood. One that does not end because it's not part of the Mosaic Covenant. One that is eternal. 
says, by myself I have sworn, because he could swear by no one greater. Because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Again, notice that he does not say the one whom you love. Abraham loves his son, but he loves God more, and that is obvious. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. Here's the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. I will greatly multiply your seed, the seed promise, as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies, the land promise. And this is actually a militant promise. This promises military victory. But, and as we'll see, actually, this is where I'm supposed to talk about that. This has shifted from a collective seed to a singular seed. Where before we see he will greatly bless and multiply the seed, as in a plural seed, um, as the stars of heaven, the sand which is on the seashore, the pronouns shift here to a singular seed. Your seed, the ultimate one who is to come, the one promised in the seed promise even from uh, Adam and Eve, this one will possess the gate of his enemies. Not their enemies, although that's what the text has translated as. It is a singular his. This seed will possess the gates of his enemies, and in your seed, this one singular future seed, the culmination of the seed promise, the Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the land, the seed, and the blessing. To correct the problem of a cursed creation on man's account. To correct the problem of death on man's account. And to correct the problem of a broken relationship with God in the blessing. Now there's one thing that kind of disturbs us a bit here when we consider the Abrahamic covenant unconditional, as we should. And that is that Abraham is given two causative statements here. Because you have obeyed my voice, because you have done this thing. Did God give him the Abrahamic covenant because of his faithfulness? This is the last reconfirmation of the covenant. He already has the covenant. It's already eternal. It already belongs to him. But he's about to see some things unfold in his own lifetime. In the very next chapter, Abraham receives the first plot of land in the promised land that can legally and rightly be called theirs, the cave of Machpelah in Mamre. This will be the burial plot of, um, of Sarah. And he's also going to see his own son take a wife, the wife through whom the seed line will be multiplied. And interestingly, when uh, Rebecca is collected from Hebron, the statement that she makes in chapter 24, verse 60 is that, I uh, can't remember exactly how it goes, let me, I've got my Bible. She says, they or they blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. These are the only two places in the Old Testament or the New Testament, for that matter, where this statement is made. In other words, she is aware of this covenant. She's aware of this reconfirmation. And while they've interpreted it temporally, it has eternal consequence. In this one coming singular seed, the one who will possess the gate of his enemies, the one who will actually possess this creation which was hoodwinked from those who it was given to, Adam and Eve. And that takes us into something very unique that we see in this restatement of the covenant, which is probably the reason for these causative phrases. And that is that Moses has once again very craftily organized his statement to parallel a previous episode. Parallels the previous episode of the fall. 
Genesis 3.11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave, me, gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the trial of Adam and Eve, where God stood them before his righteousness and assessed the situation and the sin, and then doled out punishment accordingly. The Abrahamic covenant is God's plan and purpose to finish his promises to Adam and Eve despite the sin that they introduced into the world, to undo the problems of the fall. And so while Adam and Eve were cast the whole world into sin and destruction because of the things that they had done, here God parallels Abraham's faithfulness with Adam and Eve's unfaithfulness. Because you have done this thing, the result is blessing. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. God says to Abraham, because you have done this, blessed are you. To Adam he said, because you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. And this goes back to the statement, or actually moves forward, no, back to 2.17. In the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Literally, this says dying, you will die. This is an emphatic phrase that he uses twice in a different way here in the Abrahamic covenant, which he has not used before in the Abrahamic covenant, where he says, blessing, I will bless. Multiplying, I will multiply. Genesis 3, 19 through 20. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We see here that man is going to die because of his sin, but that God has placed in his plan and in his program a remedy for death, and it's going to come through the woman. Again, one of the reasons why it's not just through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but through Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. This is kind of like, or this is a parallel fix to atonement. It remedies the problem until God is able to make a final remedy for it. Increased childbirth remedies the problem of death until the resurrection. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In fact, again, this is a little bit of a bird trail, but it ties in well here. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is arguing with the Sadducees over the concept of resurrection, and they say it's not taught by Moses, this is the episode he points back to. On this basis of the Abrahamic covenant, resurrection is guaranteed, because Abraham did not receive all of these promises in his lifetime, and God's promises do not fail. Therefore, just as Abraham understood, recognized, or believed that God could resurrect Isaac from the dead because God had promises to fulfill through Isaac, so the Abrahamic covenant reinforces this idea that God must resurrect his people in order to provide for them what he has promised to them. Genesis 1.27, of course, God blessed them, and on this basis they multiplied. Now here we have two uh, similes about the uncountable nature of the descendants of Abraham, which are promised to him. He uses the similes of sand and stars. There's another simile that we've seen already that he does not use, dust, dust of the earth specifically. 
Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Of these three metaphors or similes used for Israel's uncountable descendants, the one which corresponds with the curse is not present in this Abrahamic covenant, but only the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. The promise to possess the enemy's gates. We won't go through all these verses, but what happens to Adam and Eve? Because Satan is victorious for a time on this earth and has caused them to break their fellowship with God, to sin, to die, they are cast out of the garden. They are sent away, and here we have a promise that they will possess the gates of their enemies. Specifically, that the one who is coming will possess the gates of his enemies. All the nations of the world will be blessed in you. Genesis 5, we see that all the nations of the world experience death because of Adam. Oops. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through us, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15.21, notice the parallel. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, the Messiah, all will be made alive. Finally, the cause. And this is a parallel cause to the first one, because you have done this thing. And here, finally, because you have obeyed my voice, the issue is, who, are, who is Abraham learning to obey? He's learning to obey God's word instead of those who deny, contradict, or uh, interdict God's word. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Specifically, because he has listened to his wife's voice when she said to do something different than God said to do. Similarly with the woman. She was deceived by the serpent. She listened to his words instead of God's words. You see, it was supposed to go that God told Adam, Adam told Eve, and they ruled together over creation to subdue it. But what happened? The serpent told Eve, who had been told by Adam, but who does she choose? She listens to the serpent instead. And then she tells Adam, who should have listened to God, but listens to Eve, who listens to the serpent. Starts to sound like that Thanksgiving book of the lady who ate the spider. She just starts swallowing other things in order to... You guys probably don't know that book. Okay, I'm younger than some of you. Well, just keeps, keeps doubling down, digging your heels in on this sin. It's creation turned upside down, and that's what sin does. But there are two statements missing from this Abrahamic covenant because they're not necessary to bring up in this Abrahamic covenant because they have been the focal point of everything leading up to it this, uh, to this point. The seed promise and the sacrifice. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This promise of a singular future seed and the covering for sin. The Lord God made garments of sin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. The last point that I'll make here has to do with reinforcing a point that's already been made. Because here again in chapter 22, verse 19, commentators are troubled by the fact that Abraham didn't bring Isaac back with him. Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. 
So Abraham goes back to the place where he was living about three days away and apparently leaves Isaac there. Well, simply, Isaac isn't mentioned. Isaac is diminished in the latter part of this, uh, of this revelation in order to show his diminished stature to Abraham where he is the focal point, where he is the focus, where he is the object of all of Abraham's love in the previous chapters. Here we see God replacing Isaac as the focal place of Abraham, or focal point of Abraham's love. And so it would be inappropriate to put Isaac in there. Not that Moses could not have included him in there, but that this doubles down on what we have seen proven in Abraham's test. In other words, it's a literary device that Moses uses to show us the consistency of Abraham's love. Where in verses 6 and 8, we have the focus of Abraham and the lad walking together, Abraham and Isaac walking together. After the test, we have Abraham and collectively the young lads walking together. Remember back in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, his Na'arim, Stay here with the donkey, and I will take this, Na'ar, and go over there. And we will worship and return to you. This is the statement here that Isaac is going to come back with Abraham. When we see them later, Abraham is subsumed into Abraham's young men. He's not distinguished from these young men. He is one of them. Why? Because Abraham has proven that God is the focus of his love. And also, what we have seen is there is someone who is going to stand in Isaac's place. Remember Eve, when she gave birth to Cain, says, I've given, I've given birth to uh, a young man who is the Lord. That's a rough paraphrase. Eve thought she gave birth to the final seed promise. When Lamech, the father of Noah, had Noah, what does he say? This is the one who will give us rest. This is the culmination of all God's promises here in this one. What does Abraham realize here? Isaac is not the culmination of all of his promises. Isaac is the next in the seed line. And guess what? We almost get a disappointingly minimum or minimal amount of information about Isaac. It is the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the only two we spend any time with in the text is Abraham and Jacob. In fact, Isaac's not even mentioned again, or we don't see him again until the end of chapter 24. Through his whole mom's death narrative, He's not mentioned. Even while a wife is being found for him, he's not on that trip. Abraham sends one of his young men to go collect this woman for Isaac. And Rebekah comes back, and that's the next time we see Isaac, is when his bride arrives. All right, lastly and quickly, Nahor's brood. This some people don't think this belongs in chapter 22, that it should be pushed into chapter 25. The text seems to, to indicate that it's still part of what is happening in this uh, reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. But specifically, the Abrahamic covenant promises multiplication of the seed. Abraham has one seed in the seed promise covenant right now. How is that going to turn into more? God begins to show him by sending a notice to him from his, uh, his brother Nahor, that Nahor has had many children. In fact, he's had 12 children. One of those children has produced a daughter, probably more of them have, but specifically he focuses here on his daughter, Rebekah. It says, Now it came about after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. The also here is probably indicative of Sarah having uh, had children. Uh, perhaps Abraham sent a note, or perhaps Sarah sent a note saying that Sarah has had a child, 
despite her barrenness, because you remember last time we saw them together, what we noted was that Sarah was barren and she had no children. Well, we saw that Milcah married Nahor. Well, Milcah has eight children, Uz and Buzz and Kemuel, Hesed, Hazor, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. We're told that Kemuel was the father of Aram because Aram is an important character in that uh, area. Aram is the father of the Arameans, and this becomes the Aramean land. Uh, they're kind of to the northeast of Israel. But Bethuel is the one that's focused on because Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. And these eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, who is Abraham's brother. Finally, we see that there were four more given to Nahor for a grand total of 12, just as was promised to Ishmael, 12 sons, 12 kings, and promised to Jacob eventually, 12 children. This was born to a concubine. Her name was Ruma, and she also bore Teba and Gaham and Tahash and Maaka. Now, all of these have some, or most of these, have some mention again in scripture, especially Jeremiah 25 and in the books of Job. Um, a lot of these are characters in the uh, Syrian and Jordanian uh, territory, but Maaka is one that will come up again, who lived kind of in this southern Syrian valley. So ending this morning, just giving you some pictures to look at. Syrian valley, this is looking over uh, southern Syria, just south of Damascus. You turn north and you see Mount Hermon. And you turn to the east and you see Tishbe, where Elijah was from. And here is the Hula Valley, kind of south of that. So you've got this Gilead, Aramea, Syria, uh, Lebanon area. This is where Nahor and his family lived, was up north here. And this is where God is about to drive or uh, bring Rebekah from, is from these northern regions of Syria. All right, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for your promises and your revelation of who you are in it. We thank you that we can come to know you better by studying your word, uh, and that we get to interact with you and understand you in the body of Christ. We pray that you would continue to grow us up in this body, that as we come to know you, we would demonstrate your love that you have for others, uh, to those around us. Uh, we do pray that uh, we would be faithful in all these things, recognizing that it is possible to be a disappointment, to be disappointing if we uh, fail to love you by obeying your commandments. Uh, but we do thank you for your grace, even in these situations where we... Uh, where we sin, and we, we know that we do, where we do things in opposition to you and in rebellion against you, even as believers. We thank you for the eternal security that you've given us in the finished work of your Son, that it's not on the basis of our works or our sanctification, but Christ who sanctifies us. So we do praise you for all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.